0: Let's turn in the scriptures to the Song of Songs. It's right before the book of Isaiah. I'm going to start way back and uh, going to seem like maybe a strange place, but I really need to uh, uh, begin back here. Biblically speaking, churches don't need names. Uh, There's the church in Ephesus and the church in Corinth. We could be the church on Burns Road. But 25 years ago, our congregation determined that we would refer to ourselves as Tri-County Bible Church. Of course, Tri-County is our region. We're tucked here in this eastern corner of Lake County, just a few miles from Ashtabula County to the east and just a few miles from Geauga County to the south. We called ourselves Tri-County because of our region, but we also chose one more term, and that was we're Tri-County Bible Church. We chose that single term, Bible, because we believe it conveyed very accurately to our community what is central in our gatherings, central in our fellowship. If you come to a gathering of Tri-County, you're going to read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, experience the Bible's teaching. We hope that our name represents truth in advertising. If you walk into our, fir- our church for the first time, we hope that you leave saying, wow, these people love the Bible. These people take the Bible seriously. We hope you leave saying, I understand more of the Bible. I understand more of the Word of God that was breathed out by the Spirit of God. And in order to drive me to the Son of God, we pray that you say, those people love the Bible. We're a Bible church. I begin with that short introduction to explain why we're studying today's passage. Today's passage is Song of Songs 4, verses 1 through 9, and 5, 2 through 7, 13. It's a big section that we're overviewing largely the second half of it. The section of Scripture that we study today is often considered one of the most uncomfortable in the Bible. It's the section of scripture that makes adults blush and little kids laugh, and some break out their highlighters and start coloring all over the pages saying, did you know that those words were in the Bible? The Song of Songs is a collection of love poems. It was originally intended basically to be used in sort of like a reader's theater type session. The two main speakers are a husband and wife, and it's clear throughout that they're married because they remember their marriage, they reflect on their vows, they insist that singles not awaken the passions that they're enjoying, things like this. The poems that this married couple remembers focus on their relationship, it focuses on significant events in their lives, it focuses on their vows, it focuses on their fears, And the poems focus on their intimacy. As I've told you in weeks past, I think that these poems were collected and edited into a single volume by Israel's King Solomon, who reigned in Israel about a thousand years before Jesus. The first verse indicates that this is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The simplest reading of that is that this is Solomon's greatest song. Other parts of the Old Testament say he wrote over a thousand songs. This is his song of songs. I'm also compelled by the historical case that Solomon composed this book at the end of his life, uh, probably along with Ecclesiastes, as a repentant reflection on how he had so horribly abused God's good gift of marriage. So today is the third of four messages in the Song of Songs. I've simply titled it The Beauty. The previous two messages were titled The Fire and The Wedding. And with every message, we're moving closer toward the center. In that last message two weeks ago on The Wedding, we focused on the song, chapter 2-8 through chapter 3, verse 11. And I want to quickly review what we saw in that portion At the end of chapter 2, the bride remembered her groom's invitation to awaken her affection because the season was right. She said, come away. And then she remembered his words, come away with me, in chapter 2, verse 10. Later on, she beautifully expressed her delight in their commitment, in their mutual commitment. In chapter 2, verse 16, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. Two weeks ago, I also pointed out that those two features were powerfully mirrored in chapter 7. And I have tried to point out every time I've taught, just building up the case again, I've tried to point out every time that I've taught that this whole collection of poems is mirrored at chapter 5, basically, verse 1, is where you start seeing the reflection of, of everything that's been said in the first four chapters. It's a big chiasm. It's a big, beautiful mirror. It's profound, and we're going to see more of that today. Lord willing, we will get to the very center of the book next week. But after remembering the invitation at the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, the bride remembers a nightmare. She remembers a nightmare that she had about losing her husband and then eventually finding him again and embracing him. And in the middle of their embrace, she abruptly stops the recounting of her nightmare and she looks out at all the singles who are listening in and she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the doze of the field, a phrase that in Hebrew rhymes with by the Lord God, the Almighty. In view of the beauty of the way God's created And in view of God himself, she says, I command you, do not awaken or stir up love until the time is right. Of course, throughout the book, Solomon is emphasizing that this fire of romantic love is designed for the fireplace of lifelong exclusive commitment. So she has a nightmare, and that nightmare ends with, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Well... In the second half of chapter 3, she approaches her groom. This is the remembrance of the grand pomp and circumstance of their wedding. And the, the last image we get, after we get the image of the bride coming along on this carriage with 60 experienced swordsmen around her, she approaches her king, Solomon, who's standing on the day of his wedding with a gladness of heart. She's approaching her beaming groom. It's where chapter 3 ends. Remarkable. Solomon's unforgettable joy on that day. As we approach the scriptures for today, I want you to know that the passages that we're going to go through, I'm going to go through very briefly, and I'm going to go through discreetly. I am very aware of the diversity of our congregation, the fact that we have adults and children, We have men and women. We have singles and marrieds. We have couples whose marriages are on a spectrum from very satisfying to struggling very much. And we also have Christians and non-Christians. I'm aware that I'm pastoring an entire congregation of, of diverse individuals. And I want you to know that I'm going to be careful with the passage, but I also want you to know, I said it in the first message, this is God's word, and it is crucial for all of us to receive its instruction and to be shaped by its truth, right? The first portion of Scripture that we look at today is chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And if you're looking at the ESV, the title in the ESV, which is not inspired, but in this case is a very helpful summary, says Solomon is admiring his bride's beauty. That's what's going on. Coming after the wedding ceremony in chapter 3, this description in chapter four may, many interpreters say it does, it may recall the honeymoon. Interestingly, what, what happens here in the first nine verses of chapter four is an ancient love poem. It's actually a poem that would be called in the Middle East, a washf. We don't have the letter S that they have in the Middle East, so it's a shf. It's W-A-S-F, washf. It's the type of poem in which a lover describes his or her lover's body in great detail. And in this song, the Song of Songs, there are four of these poems throughout. It's helpful to point out that these descriptions are erotic, but they are not explicit. They are suggestive. As I said, it's the first of four of these types of poems. And in this one, in chapter 4, Solomon praises his wife's body... From her head down to her torso. You see her head referred to in verse 1 and her torso referred to in verses 5 and 6. But if you notice the book ends, verse 1 and verse 7, Solomon says, and this is his main point, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. You're altogether beautiful, my love. That's what he's expressing. He is saying over and over and over and over, I admire your beauty. The main idea here, of course, is a husband is verbally and poetically praising his wife's beauty in detail. That's what's going on. Now, what I want to do right now, again, I'm just overviewing it for the most part, is point out what happens on the other side of the center of the book. There are three mirroring descriptions. The bride, again, in chapter 5, verses 2 to 8, recalls a nightmare, She can't find him, and the nightmare again ends with her looking out at the daughters of Jerusalem and saying, I adjure you, and then the chorus begs her to describe what she loves about her groom. So, in chapter 5, verse 9, through chapter 6, verse 3, she describes in detail what she admires about him she especially emphasizes in chapter 6, verse 3, that she loves their exclusive commitment. And then again, climactically with a doubling, Solomon describes in detail his wife's beauty. Rather than with one poem, he does it with two. He is stressing his thorough admiration of his bride. So, you can see That there is a subtle but deliberate and beautiful design to this Song of Songs. You can see that the chiasm or the mirroring of it is rich. It's profound. And now I want to begin reflecting on it. Okay, I'm going to point out a few details in the text as we go through, but I want you to know that the reading of the text is somewhat done, and I'm guessing that some of you are very thankful for that. Many people find these ancient poems that describe the body's beauty in detail, they actually find them quite funny. And this is where I want to begin. I want to begin with an honest unpacking of what many people react with when they read these poems. I want to share three reasons why people often laugh when they read these poems. For many of us, in the first case, When we read Solomon's praising of his wife's beauty, we hear them as insults. We hear them and we say, was that a backhanded slap? For example, if you're back in chapter 4, you look at verse 1 where he compares his bride's neck to the Tower of David in the city of Jerusalem. I think many of us respond like, poor woman, she must have had a really long neck. (laughs) Solomon, did you have to write a poem about her towering neck? Did, Did you have to immortalize this for time and eternity? Now, of course, he's not insulting her at all. Solomon's point of comparison is not with the tower's height that is like the first thing we think of. Instead, he's thinking about the tower's elegance and its craftsmanship. He's thinking about how her neck rises above her shoulders like a masterfully constructed building rises on a beautiful skyline. He's especially focused on how her neck is so elegantly covered in expensive necklaces, just like the tower is covered with expensive shields, some of the most valuable property in the nation. He's not insulting her at all, but often we laugh because we read it as an insult. The second reason we often laugh is because when we encounter these descriptive poems, Even the ones, the comparisons that don't sound insulting, sound really strange. Like, here's an example. Solomon, in verse 1, praises his wife's hair, and he says, your hair is like a flock of goats as it runs down hills. (laughs) I don't think any of us even know what to make of that. We're We're not necessarily thinking it's insulting. We just think, uh, is that a compliment? Her hair is like goats. (laughs) Is he saying it's thick? Is he saying it's matted down? I, I just don't get what he's saying. And that's because most of us don't live day to day where we see flocks of goats running together in a rhythmic and mesmerizing way on hillsides. We miss, because we don't live in in the same kind of culture, we miss that he's describing the way that the tresses of her hair fascinate him as it falls on her shoulder and as she moves her head. In an agrarian culture, this wouldn't have sounded strange, but it often sounds strange to us. The third reason many people laugh and some of you might have expected that I was going here, but if we get past the comparisons that sound insulting and the comparisons that sound strange, we still have to deal with the fact that this sort of poem seems so unrealistic for most married couples. In fact, it seems laughably unrealistic. I think many of us know that Shakespeare wrote a lot of sonnets. He wrote more than 150. I have not read most of those sonnets, I've read a few. Are you aware that one of his sonnets, sonnet number 130, is a mockery of ancient washs? these types of poems where you describe your wife's beauty in detail. In his sonnet, sonnet 130, he says, her eyes do not remind me of the sun, her lips are not nearly as red as coral, and her breath is not always pleasant. The two central lines of the poem, he says, In some perfumes there is more delight Than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. <laughs> I think many of us hear a poem like that and we're like, Yeah, that sounds maybe just a little bit more, more realistic. And, and if I'm honest, and I'm being honest, like I would be terrified if my wife wrote a descriptive poem about my body. If she, if she wrote a poem about like my feet or my waist or my thinning hair, <laughs> it would be positively embarrassing. <laughs> to many married readers, honestly, if we approach this, we, we read a poem like this and we're like, I, I'm not quite sure, that, that seems just totally unrealistic. I mean, would I be lying if I wrote something like that? Or You, you get the idea. Hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. I want to deal honestly with the passage we have in front of us. We have ancient love poems describing the admiration of the body in detail. And many of us react as like, what does this have to do with me? Right? I want to state the main point, And then in conclusion, I want to reflect on it. I think most of you would agree with me that just reading these passages or even overviewing these passages the main point centers around the admiration of beauty. A husband is admiring his wife's beauty repeatedly and in detail, and a wife is admiring her husband's beauty in detail. I'd state the main point something like this. A husband and wife should admire each other's beauty. Doing so pictures the gospel. Now, I'm going to reflect on this admiration as we wrap up. It's going to be about 10 minutes or so, but I'm going to reflect on this admiration and hold on to that second statement. Doing so reflects the gospel until I get to the end. I'm going to show the connection. But I think you look at a passage like this and you say, yeah, that's the main thing going on. A husband and wife should admire each other's beauty. There's an admiration of beauty. Now I want to reflect on it. The first reflection is this. We need to realize that beauty and admiration are so broken in our culture and in our world. Our culture, our American culture, idolizes beauty. The beauty industry is a $42 billion industry. In our world, so much beauty Is deceptive. So much of it is enhanced with Photoshop and so much beauty is skin deep. That is, it's beautiful on the outside but it masks an evil character. Not only that, but we have twisted senses of beauty. The fall has affected what we are attracted to. So we live in a culture and we ourselves have often called things to be beautiful that are not beautiful and in our world beauty is always temporary flowers wilt, paintings crack and humans die. It's interesting but if you read Solomon's final chapter in Ecclesiastes he gives another very detailed description of the human body including the hair and the eyes and the legs and so forth. And it is not flattering at all. It's both funny in its description of old age, and it's very sobering as he's telling the young people in his kingdom to remember God in the days of their youth. Beauty is deceptive. Beauty is is temporary. Our, Our sense of beauty is twisted. The final chapter of Proverbs, Solomon recorded a poem that said very wisely, beauty is empty. Beauty is empty. We have to realize that we live in a world and in a culture that has a twisted view of beauty. Second reflection on this theme of admiring beauty is, you need to know that being embodied is a good thing. Despite the twisting and the idolizing of beauty in our culture, Beauty itself is not a bad thing, and despite the brokenness of our bodies, our bodies are not fundamentally bad, but good. God created humans to be embodied beings, and he declared us to be very good. Being a human, having a body, is a good thing. A helpful author named Nancy Percy recently wrote a book called Love Thy Body. It's an Excellent book. I'd highly recommend it in our culture that is so confused on issues of gender and sexuality. She explains that the Bible's view of the body has been radically countercultural for thousands of years. Most other religions, as she explains, teach that the goal of salvation is to escape from the material world because this material world, this creation, is inherently evil. However, the Bible teaches that being human, including having bodies that are created from the dust, being human is fundamentally good. And the goal of salvation is not escaping the body. It's the resurrection of our body. It's the redemption of our body, along with the redemption of all creation. And Piercy points out, that the most revolutionary claim of the entire Bible is the incarnation. The fact that God, the Most High God, she says, himself entered into the realm of matter and he took on a physical body. It's wonderful. She says this was Christianity's greatest scandal. It's why the apostles repeatedly stressed Christ's body, that in him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. She goes on to say, John even says that the crucial test of whether you're a true believer or not is to affirm that Jesus has come in the flesh. Piercy concludes, Christ's taking on of human nature was not some temporary expedient to be left behind when he finished the work of salvation. His human nature is forever connected to his divine nature. Jesus, we will forever worship as the man, the human, God become man. We do ourselves disservice. We disrespect ourselves and our fellow humans, when we somehow think that this body is inherently bad. That's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the gospel. The gospel message, of course, is that Jesus is God become human. And I don't want to assume for a second that all of us get this. Jesus is God become human. Jesus of Nazareth is God in flesh. And as a human, he lived perfectly like none of us ever lived. And then he willingly chose to die in the place of guilty humans bearing our punishment so that if you would take refuge in him, you would be forever protected from the wrath of God. If you have not turned from being your own authority, I urge you to repent. Do an about face in your life and say, Jesus, I have lived as my own authority, but you died for me. You rose again. You are coming again. Jesus, I want to follow you. I submit my life to you. I call on you. Save me. Be my Lord. Be my shepherd. The king will save you. He will hear your call. The third point of reflection is recognize the ultimate purpose of your body. The ultimate purpose of your body is to glorify God humans were made to mirror what God is like throughout creation. We were made to use our minds and our bodies, our eyes and our hands and our feet, our breath. We were made to use everything about us to engage in work that reflects God and loves and blesses others. We are given life In our bodies to glorify God. In other words, we are not given bodies to wow other people. We are not given bodies in order to please ourselves and get as much pleasure as we possibly can. We are given bodies in order to glorify God. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth very powerfully the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. I just step back from this. Just say, when you step back from human life, what it means to be a human being, do you get this sense that I was made to reflect God? I was made to work in ways that show that God is a God of order and beauty and love. And what it means to be human, the way God originally designed it, is that I was designed to live according to God's design for me, under his authority. And his spirit was designed from the very beginning of creation. His spirit was designed to fuel, motivate, energize everything I do. God wanted every single human being to mirror him, to be fueled by him, to show what he's like throughout creation. Being a human is an amazing thing from a biblical perspective. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Is that your concept of yourself? I want to speak directly to Lizzie. And where is Allie? Up there. I'm not going to be able to catch your eyes as well as I'll be able to catch Lizzie's. But, you know, as, as people are pre- preparing to be baptized and I'm preparing my message, I'm often thinking, uh, how can I serve these people being baptized on this special day on this day in which they testify of God's grace in their lives. And I have to confess with you that uh, I was actually a little bit concerned about preaching what I'm preaching on the day of your baptism because you could leave here saying, I'm going to forever remember that my pastor preached on the most awkward passage of the Bible on the morning of my baptism. And instead, I honestly pray That you will forever remember this message on the body. Scripture says, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. You are not your own. You belong to Him, you're under His authority. And that includes everything about you, including your body. And I just pray that as you both grow in your Christian lives, it will, it will be, Christian living will be as real to you as what you do in your body. That you respect your body, control your body, and use your body for the glory of God the thoughts you think, the words you say, the looks you give, I pray that you will glorify God in your bodies. That is what it means to be a Christian. The fourth thing I want us all to reflect on is that we must remember that marriage is the place for the kind of admiration that we see in the song. These poems of admiration over the body take place within marriage. This couple has committed themselves exclusively to each other. Based on this reflection, I want to first address singles in our congregation. If you are not married, you do not have a right from God and an authorization from God to go down this sort of admiration in your mind. Immorality is immoral because it unites two people who are not united through covenant promises. That's what makes it immoral. The two are becoming one when the two are not one. It's what makes pornography so demeaning. Pornography uses people. It divorces admiration from commitment. It divorces admiration from relationship. If you're living immorally, I urge you this morning, the Bible calls you to repent. There is forgiveness with true repentance. There is no forgiveness apart from repentance. And I want to address believers who are married. Of course, everything I said there applies to them, and I hope singles are listening about the responsibilities of marriage. Those who are married, I say you have a responsibility to admire your spouse husband, does your wife know that you admire her more than other women? Wife, does your husband know that you admire him more than other men? This is where I return to that subject of idealism. How could I ever praise my, my, my wife or my husband as, as flawlessly as, as the song does? I'll just speak it very personally. Hannah doesn't admire me because she holds up a picture of me next to 50 other guys and she says, hands down, he's got the best features. (laughs) Honestly, she doesn't. She admires me. This is so deeply humbling because she has committed herself to me. And because on our wedding day, she said, my affections are going to be for you and you alone. And the admiration conveys the commitment. Admiration of beauty is a choice. It's a commitment. We live in a culture that just thinks, I saw something beautiful. What else could I do but just be hooked? When the Bible views us as determining to admire those things that are truly beautiful. Married couples, if you have made the commitment to belong to one another, body and soul, then follow through in verbalizing your admiration repeatedly and in detail. Fifth and finally, long for the day when you see and admire the beauty which every admiring couple faintly previews. I just want to suggest this. Do You know that the final book of the Bible, Revelation, opens in chapter 1 with a marvelous detailed description of Jesus. His clothing is described. His hair is described. His eyes are described. His feet are described His voice is described. It honestly sounds a little bit like this kind of a poem. And the same book, Revelation, ends in chapter 21 with these words, Come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And there's more than 20 verses of description of this bride's beauty. Now, I need to clearly say, those are not erotic sexual descriptions like they are in the song. But they are the thing to which the temporary admiration within every marriage is designed to point. That's why the language of groom and bride is used in Revelation, because that's the ultimate reality to which my marriage is intended to point. Every bride who faithfully admires her groom is intended to faintly point ahead to that great reality that Christ's people are going to be forever satisfied in his glorious presence. When we finally see him, the longings of our hearts will be satisfied. And every groom who faithfully admires his bride faithfully points ahead, faintly points ahead to the Savior Who chose to delight in the church and chose to give his life up for us? Husband and wife, when you choose to admire your spouse, you glorify God. You faintly point ahead to a much greater ultimate reality. Singles, when you choose to reserve this sort of admiration for the covenant of marriage, you're wise and you glorify God. And Christians, I speak to all of us, whether we are married or not, do you know that our lives are going to end like the Bible ends? In the fullness of overwhelming beauty, such beauty that we can't even put it into words. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us, young and old, single and married, men and women, to be shaped by your word. God, I pray that non-Christians here, those who have not committed their lives to Jesus, would be drawn to him today, recognizing that they exist for him and that everything in life is created by him and for him. God, I pray that they would humble themselves, repent, and turn to Jesus. I pray for every Christian here that we would receive this instruction and be wise. Show, Lord, that there is power in your word to form up our lives into the image of Jesus so that we would be unselfish, Respectful, controlled, patient, like Jesus demands. For his glory and our good, I pray. Amen. Amen.